Welcome to The Curriculum, a podcast by Cornerstones Education. Here we discuss all things curriculum, plus leadership issues, teaching tips and much, much more. Hello, Angela. Welcome to the podcast. Um, it's lovely to have you on to talk about all sorts of things, but mainly your book that you had published last year, so July 2020, called Lighting the Way, The Case for Ethical Leadership in Schools. And I've really enjoyed reading the book. It's absolutely packed full of advice about leadership and approaches that was published by Bloomsbury last Mm. year and uh, people listening may have heard of you already through your TED talks or the documentary that was on BBC school and uh, or may have even met you at different events or had coaching from you so uh, for those who don't know who you are what you do could you give us a brief introduction about you and your career please oh sure I'd love to so my name is Angie Brown and um, I trained as an English teacher about 22 years ago now in Bristol Um, and then I worked in Bristol schools for a long time so I soon found myself working with young people who were failing to thrive or finding it difficult to thrive in within the mainstream provision in the school and I began to specialize in working with young people with those young people often called naughty boys but rarely actually naughty boys I don't know that that exists as a thing in itself mm. um and uh, we were given the opportunity in the school that I worked in, I'm a, I'm a secondary English teacher, we were given the opportunity to set up a provision for children who needed some sort of alternatives to the, um, to the full mainstream diet. And so I became um, the head of this unit within the school. I set up a unit within the school and, and, and often found myself advocating for young people and kind of being a bit of a go-between, a bit of a conduit between the experiences that the young people were having within mainstream classes and also the experiences the teachers were having and trying to support and manage the, these young people's behaviour. Um, I did that for a few years and also looked after the special educational needs um, department in the school and also took on the role of equalities and diversities lead in the school and then I moved on to work within the special schools Uh, so I I got an executive um, deputy headship of a federation of an executive of a a special school uh, for children it was called BESD at the time and was and it was federated with the pupil referral service and then I soon became head teacher of that pupil referral service and that was in South Gloucestershire so looking after the behaviour support team children with complex mental health needs children who were in the primary and um, secondary uh, pupil referral units and and also the hospital education service and I then moved on from that role a few years later and that was a slightly kind of strange and peripheral role but but one I really really enjoyed um, and I moved on to become the head teacher of a state-funded Steiner school and I did that because in many ways it answered a question that I felt like I'd been asking for a long time which was how could mainstream schools be designed in ways that would support some of the more vulnerable people mm. in society some of the more vulnerable children some of the children that I'd seen in in then numerous provisions not thriving and I had a um I had this contention that if we could offer children craft and art and if we could really attend to the more holistic needs of a human being that we would have an education system that really worked for people. And I was convinced that I didn't want to do that in the private sector. Of course, 
Steiner schools have existed for, for, for years and years and years. But at the moment, they their fee they had been until that point they've been fee paying, and, and suddenly this opportunity to set up a state funded Steiner school presented itself in Bristol, in the city that I'd worked in for many many years, mm. and in East Bristol, in the in the particularly deprived wards of um, of East Central Bristol. So I went for that and got that job, and I did that for a few years and set up that school in a beautiful building, um, and then. I was also um, a, a mother. I, I got my the headship at the Steiner School at the same time as becoming a mum for the first time. Yeah. So after, yeah, indeed, <laughs> after after three and a half years of doing that um, and being a mum and feeling like I probably wasn't doing that very well, I was definitely feeling like I wasn't doing that very well, and being ahead and feeling like I wasn't doing that very well, uh, decided that I was going to step aside from headship. And, and I think within about four days of stepping aside from headship and resigning from that post and really with a spirit of thinking, this has just been such a dream to have a go at doing this and setting this up. And it would be so great in the hands of somebody that can move it forward. I think within about four days of that, I found myself in another headship, in an interim headship this time. And I went to become head teacher of a big mainstream secondary school in South Gloucestershire. And that was the school that was um, that was featured in the in the, the BBC documentary school. Um, and again, very, I mean, just a delightful period in many ways, really, really difficult time for the school and for many schools in the country who were grappling with funding and grappling with um, living and working in outdated and underfunded buildings and resources and also working with that dilemma of how can we be really inclusive schools and at the same time support children who should have access to more funding because of their special educational needs and disabilities and not less funding and of course finding ourselves in a situation where less and less was available so that was my time in South Gloucestershire and my last post was in the trust in South Gloucestershire as, as um, interim deputy CEO and I left that role 18 months ago and have since then been coaching and working with women and working with black Asian minority ethnic colleagues who wanted to get into leadership and who I'd been working with for a long time anyway over the last few years as this kind of interest in diversity equity inclusion Mm. has always been there as, as a backdrop but now spend my time more wholeheartedly devoted to doing that work. Gosh, what a journey through. <laughs> and, and, and it's quite interesting that as you became a mum and you found, I think you were talking about it in your book, actually, about the whole thing of imposter syndrome. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I've only met one person that I've coached and I've coached a few hundred people, I think now. I, I think I've met one person who said that they haven't ever experienced it so I think we're in good company when we acknowledge that we generally tend (laughs) towards it because of Mm. of course it's not that we're always comparing ourselves to to what's out there although that that is a part of it it's often that we're comparing ourselves to the thing that we think we're supposed to be in here so I have such high expectations of myself I think I should be doing excellently at all things at all times and the voice that I use with myself and used for many years was so um, devoid of compassion, mm-hmm. so unfriendly, and so very harsh. So it was my harshest critique in many ways, but felt for, for so many years, I used to go for jobs and think, I really should get this job because I'm qualified enough to get this job. I know I'm a good person. I know I'll do the best I can. And I'd go for the job and then when I get it, and then I'd think immediately, like five seconds later, 
I'm, I, can't, I can't do this job. I don't know why I went for this job. I don't know yeah. what I was thinking. So it's been a continuous uh, background noise. And I would, I would say until about six years ago when I just really invested a lot of time in coaching and yeah. realised that she wasn't an incredibly helpful voice to have hanging around. No, I think that will resonate with a lot of listeners. If you're a leader or a teacher, just that, inter- like you say, that internal critic, um, it's, it's internalised for many years, isn't it? So it can mm. take a while to undo that, or at least just to first be aware of it and then to address it. And you do mm. talk about that in, in the book, actually, and give some guidance around that. I think coaching is a core um, part of that journey isn't it of self-discovery but also it being guided by someone else I think that is yeah. a, that's important I mean we've gone off on a, a, a on a, <laughs> a ta- another tangent but I, I just want to bring it back to uh, the book that you've written uh, Lighting the Way the Case for Ethical Leadership in Schools we'll talk about the ethical leadership aspect in a moment but why the title Lighting the Way and also why did you decide to write that book Angela and obviously you've had a lot of experience in leadership so what drew you to to then wanting to write it all down and and write it as guidance so the 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 reason I wanted to write it is that I wanted to write a book on leadership for a long time I wanted to write a book on schools for a long time and and that was because every time I picked up a book on schools I felt like it didn't really talk to the kind of school that I wanted to work in or wanted to run Mm. when I became a school leader um I I I realized that I was I was often I often felt as though I was going against the grain and it wasn't because I was doing things that were not wanted or that I I didn't, you know, I didn't ever get in trouble or anything, but people's response to the way that I led was always so shocking. People were really surprised at some of the very basic things that I thought I was bringing to organisations. And that could, that could be because some of the places I'd worked in had just been really, really challenging places to work for a long time for lots of people, but there were very small things the way that I treat people, the way I expect to be treated, the way I talk to people, the way I expect people to talk to me, really small things about human decency that I felt ended up being these gigantic kind of pointers towards how we ought to lead people and how we ought to show up as leaders. And and I realised that when I was reading leadership books, that dimension was often absent. So there was lots on, on what it takes to acquire some of the techniques around good leadership mm-hmm. and definitely lots around the tasks that you ought to be doing in order to be a good leader in schools. Yeah. And I'm definitely not one of those people that is good at those tasks. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I never kind of set out to be good at those tasks or, 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 you know, often failed at being good at those tasks. What I felt was missing was the dimension that said you can just be a human being who feels that they've got a direction for this organisation, for this community, for this school, mm. feels that they could stand and walk with other people who also want to go in that direction. And that would be enough that you didn't have to jump through multiple hoops to prove yourself, that you could just be a human being that thought, Do you know what, I'm going to put my hand up for that. And that would be enough. Yeah, so it's kind of it's at a deeper level, isn't it? It's not thinking of it just as a job with a to do list. Of, of facets of being a head teacher or a leader it's deeper it's looking at you as a uh, like you say you're the way you relate to people what you believe a very strong message in the book is about the purpose moral purpose and your vision and your values it's something we talk about as well in mm. curriculum so it's kind of fun they're more fundamental aren't they mm. yeah so the lighting the way part why did you choose that term 
So, so lighting the way is um, is actually a term that's inspired by a woman called Nancy Duarte and a woman called Patty Sanchez who wrote a book called Illuminate, and it's about communication. and And in the book, they talk about leaders as being torchbearers, and leaders as being torchbearers who light the way towards a yet um, realized future and mm. possibly a yet imagined future. I just always stuck with me that leaders are on the threshold leaders are on the threshold in education and what a threshold <laughs> they are on uh, often yeah. towards what we know and an as yet unimagined reality future reality and it takes such bravery such guts to say I'll be a torchbearer I'll light the way because I can probably see in this distant hazy distance future I can mm-hmm. see something that's worth heading towards and so part of it is that I just am really inspired by the imagery of leaders as torchbearers. And the other part of it is that there has been this motif of lighting the way, of say, of shining a light on things, of illuminating a pathway that has been has existed in my language, in, in my experience over many, many years. And also that connects to the belief that I have that everybody has that light, everybody has that ability to light the way because it's internal, because it's kind of saying, if I open up this piece of myself, I can illuminate something, I can show you something, I can cast a light that looks slightly different to others that you've seen before. And that idea just really excites me. And you uh, develop that idea, I think, in the book, because you talk about leaders lighting the way but first really understanding what their values are and their vision mm-hmm. and like you say you might not be able to imagine that fully but you have a direction like a captain would have mm-hmm. on a ship and yeah. you've got your crew with you and it's all about then communicating your vision and then that ripples to the children as well and uh, I mean have you experienced that in Gloucestershire in the school that you were at did you get to a point ever where you felt that everyone's on the same page with the vision Never. thanks for your honesty absolutely not no no not at all um and but but the intention's there the intention was there and also in certain you know so in South Gloucestershire I was in an interim headship and I was there for a short period and so I, I also really when I work with leaders talk about the importance of understanding the season and the reason that you're there and the season in the school but also in your life <clears throat> so so for some of us there is an opportunity to think this is this is it now I've got I've got well <laughs> before if we think in the absence of high stakes accountability we could imagine that we could be in a school for a long season of our lives and that we could take a school through you know six years or nine years even of its life um, and potentially that opportunity is there for some people and other people are in interim roles and their job is to do something slightly different it's still to light the way still for a period for a group of people to overcome some threshold or the other and I think it's really worth bearing in mind where you are and what the season is and what the parameters are around that in order to still do that work just as purposefully but within a container that's appropriate Um, I would say that in the I, I first came into contact with the book Illuminate when I started at um, at the Steiner School in my headship there and I just had my son and so I was full of visions of the future and, and the, uh, as the, the as yet unimagined possibilities of the future and we did a huge amount of work there and we really were on the same page that first mm. group of staff we were on the same page and we had really solid values and we had a 
very solid vision for the future and we knew what our mission was and we we did it with purpose and we used the language of those values all the time and it was just an incredible thing and it didn't mean that it wasn't difficult because it really was difficult but what it meant was that in the midst of that chaos sometimes and challenge and difficulty we had a really kind of concrete sense of a north star there was a very definite sense of but we are going in that direction yeah and we did know it was kind of going to be like this um, and that was something that was real, a really eye-opening to me because previously I'd been in schools that felt like they were often in challenge and turmoil and flux, but we kind of kept having to reset the North Star and I couldn't work out why it never felt comfortable. It's like we were always going back to the drawing board and having yeah. this conversation again about where we, where we are and we're kind of trying to retrofit our vision and values to circumstances mm. rather than having those right there at the front of everything we do and allowing circumstances to meet them constantly and allowing circumstances to just kind of happen. Yes, that's very similar to mindfulness in a way of sitting in the chaos and acknowledging that there is a huge amount of flux in education, but keeping, I love that image of the North Star, it's just keeping that in mind and hearts in the school Mm. so that whatever happens, whether you get a leak in the roof or (laughs) you were mentioning a squirrel in the... (laughs) Yeah, squirrels, badges, leaks. Yeah. All sorts uh, all of things, all the things. All, all manner of chaos and, and uh, obviously you've got national initiatives and other things that come into play, but having that clarity still is is very important for leaders. Um, and so, one thing I want to say though yeah. about the about about schools is that sometimes I think leaders as leaders, there is a tendency to think about the leadership that you bring to the school and whether you can achieve all of those things, you know, whether you achieve a a clear vision a clear set of values that everybody understands the mission and that you're able to then deliver that and manifest that in that school and actually enlightening the way I'm also encouraging those people who are who are leaders who are not necessarily tied to the one school that they might work in so my my kind of um my work my ambition I feel like the light that I want to shine is about people seeing themselves as leaders beyond the role that they're in right now as as leaders is leadership is something that we develop over time and it could be over multiple schools or in multiple situations mm. or in our families or in our communities and so in a sense that north star is something that is the same north star regardless of the regardless of the role regardless of the context oh, my north yeah. star doesn't shift Mm. I'm lighting the same way now as I was in my first school. It's the same way that I was lighting in the second school. It's the same way that I was lighting when I was deputy CEO of a multi-academy trust. That doesn't change. The context changes in which I'm doing that. It's a nice call to action, really, because there Mm. are people in education who may feel weighed down by the rules. And and you say in your book that it's it's not always a bad thing to shake that up a bit and to really look at within yourself at what you believe is right. And I've had many conversations with people recently about the purpose of education. And there's a bit of a shift. There is more debate going on. Mm. about that and and we won't get into all the ins and outs on this podcast maybe now is the time to think about what you truly believe and, mm. and if you want to spread your leadership and your vision I think it's a great time and I think um that over the last year I've been really interested in how 
those people who have really stood out for me. Not just school leaders, but just people have been those people that have been able to have their own mind about things. How am I going to make sense of devices in school? How am I going to make sense of whether we're providing vouchers or food parcels? How am I making sense of whether we are closing the school or opening the school or who we're closing it for, who it's open to? How am I making sense about um, reaching out to staff who might be more impacted upon than um, than others um, as a consequence of the pandemic. Those people who have said, I look into myself, work out for myself, who I am, I know my values, and then I put that back out into the world and say, and this is now how I'm going to act. It's just so impressive. And that is... This, this kind of situation, this year that we've been in, is mm. the ideal opportunity to say, do you know what, I'm not, I can't listen to that voice over there or that voice over there because it doesn't align with who I am as a human being. It doesn't, it isn't authentic to me. And I think we've seen some really great examples of people just plowing their own furrow in that way and really saying this is the way that it's going to be here for these people because I'm lighting the way for this community this particular community and this is the way that we need to do this yeah I've noticed that as well we've noticed from talking to head teachers schools who've obviously gone through so much this year but it's almost bolstered their resolve to um to do what's right for their children rather Mm -hmm. than be necessarily dictated to Mm. I mean, there's all obviously talk about teacher retention, head teacher retention and people leaving the profession. What's your take on it, Angela? And what do you think the main issues are that leaders face at the moment? I'm always relentlessly positive about the education system. I always hope I'm not read as doom and gloom because I really am not. I love working. I've loved working in schools. I love schools <laughs> and I love educators. Good so job. <laughs> I think, you know, I think I'm, I'm a real supporter of people that work in the education system. I think you have to have a lot of energy and resilience to continue to do it well. And so I, so I think that, that there's a question mark over the future of leadership because I don't know that there's always masses of space for people to take that um critical look that reflective look at how they're doing and whether or not it still remains to be the right thing for them um i think the job of school leadership is increasingly difficult if we take the position that we are um going to be dictated to by other people and i think it's really hard to find a sense of self and to be able to say to others actually I see what the trust needs are I see what the local authority needs are I see what the department needs are and this is where I stand with these things and as much as possible I intend to do things in this way I think it's really really hard to find that voice because I think that often um, our own voice our own kind of uh, sense of how we might do things is drowned out by the sometimes well-meaning <laughs> advice of others, guidance from said trust, Department for Education, local authority. And I, for, for me, resilience comes from listening to what's inside. It's, that's where it's always been. And so therefore, teacher resilience Leader leadership resilience and well-being for me comes from those leaders being able to really kind of take a true 
sense to get a really clear gauge of where they're coming from and drown out some of that external external noise and I think the thing that I was trying to trying to sort of um, articulate in the book is that there is this there is this um, this strange dichotomy between what is asked of leaders you know to show all of these things if you read the job description of a leader it is of course that person who has tenacity and autonomy and resilience and is great you know is a great starter and wants to think on their feet and think on their own and is independent of thought and then there is this huge call to do exactly what you're told Mm. so it it isn't it isn't surprising that many people who feel like they can do the former end up leaving because what's actually being required of them is to do the latter and there needs to be really real honesty in that dialogue around um you know I can of course do the things that you're asking me to do but what you've said you're looking for is this person over here and that's the person that will probably thrive and I mean your book in your book you discuss ways in which leaders can build that resilience Mm. don't you and Mm. um, at the end of each chapter there are questions for reflection and action which I think are really I think people who are reading that will find that really useful Um, I mean moving on now to the whole idea of ethical leadership because that's something that you write a lot about and and you um, you know you discuss a lot in your work what what does that mean ethical leadership to you when you when you describe it to people Mm, I don't know that I you know on reflection because and I say this because I've been recently thinking about ethics in leadership Mm. I um I very much had a sense of um ethics and ethical leadership as being tied to a value set or a way of doing things and I think I've probably changed my position on this um more recently because I don't know that always our personal values are what really drives ethical leadership. I think for me, this is more about probably the kind of utilitarian view of the greatest happiness of the greatest number of doing things in a way that takes account of rightness, of okayness, of goodness for as many people as we possibly can. And it's in the taking account of the the many dimensions, the many um, interests that are at play in situations, in decision-making, in the way that we run organisations, that we're able to demonstrate ethical leadership. And I think it's in not taking account and in not truly kind of seeing and hearing and recognising those different dimensions that we see an ethical practice in organisations. So I'm interested in that. And, you know, when I say ethical leadership, I don't mean kind of, I always think people think I mean being nice to everybody or, you know, know. being to everybody and agreeing with everybody and therefore sort of bending to every single request. And I actually in the book state quite the opposite on, you know, in most of the, um, most of the sections of the book that I think people probably have misconceptions about are around how we work compassionately with people. When I talk about working compassionately with people, I'm talking about it because I'm talking about making sure that we take account of the views of different people, of the stakeholders, of people who might be affected by our decisions. And taking account of it and listening and being compassionate is to say you're another human being 
and I'm listening to you and I'm here with you and I'm hearing you. But it doesn't mean that you then agree with them. And it doesn't mean that they can then have the thing that they are asking for or requesting. Because, of course, as a leader, we then go back to the organisation and we say, with all of the views that I've taken account of and having listened to all the things I've heard, I now still need to go and make the decision that is right for the organisation or for the children. It's in the best interests of the, the greatest happiness of the greatest number in this situation. So it's an approach rather than a kind of bending to everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the same goes for managing behaviour and the same goes for exclusions. I'm, I've worked on both sides of that exclusion debate. I've worked in pupil referral service for an extensive period of time. And I've worked in mainstream education for an extensive period of time. And I'm not a head teacher who would say that I want to ban exclusions because in the current system, with the current levels of funding that there are in schools to support children who desperately need support, there is no way that I would advocate for a system that would ban exclusions. Mm. So it, again, ethical leadership isn't about banning exclusions or about having multiple exclusions. It's about taking account sufficiently of all of the needs of all of the voices and making sure that we take decisions that lead to the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah, I think that's a lot, really nice, clear definition. And uh, like you say, in your book, you discuss uh, I think it's really useful to read those case studies or those stories of uh, difficult decisions where you've had mm. to meet with parents or children about behaviour and you talk through the process of still coming to that decision, mm. our decision for a few or one person or a family mm. member, but it's got that you've got the greater good, like you say, in mind. And I mean, leading on from eth ethical leadership, you've actually... Uh, talked about schools being nourished schools is that is that linked to the ethical approach then the whole idea yes it, <clears throat> it, it actually came before so I had um before I wrote the book I as, uh, as, as I said earlier I had this uh this sense that there was something about uh the school system that just didn't allow people to flourish and um human beings children and adults, and probably the adults that come into contact with the organisations, the parents and the community that meet various interfaces of schools. So I had this idea that a school that would nourish people would really attend to human flourishing and would look at the dimensions of um, the, the kind of the spiritual realm, if you like. And, and I don't mean religious, I very much mean the kind of the development of the, of the human spirit in relation to the world that would look at craft, that would look at good food and that would also stimulate the mind. And so um, I, that was my kind of my original idea was, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of school? And that, that ended up morphing into what was this opportunity to run the state funded Steiner school in many ways and to test out that, that theory that, you know, to, to ask that question, but it, it uh, much like illumination luminary, which now appears in my work, my current my current body of work nourished and nourishing was was just a word that was in my vocabulary and felt very very important to me and has done and so I had a network that I set up in around 2016-17 called Nourish Collective and that was a, a network to support women women who were working in schools who also wanted to bring this dimension of nourishment into organizations um, and, and understood that, that nourishment happens on several dimensions, 
for adults and for children mm-hmm. and and nourish collective was really a, a nourishing space and a place for women working in edu- in the education system to come together and to have those conversations but also just to kind of have it have a network of people um it is in a different iteration now so nourished nourished school used to be my twitter handle it is no longer nourish collective was the name of the network and it isn't anymore um and not because the the gesture isn't there but because the the kind of my work has sort of shifted um focus more recently and what and what are you working on at the moment and and what do you offer school leaders who may want to find out more about what you do or get some support from you Angie? Mm. so i i still coach um and, and spend most of my time in coaching of some form or another. So I, I do one-to-one coaching with leaders and um, with, with head teachers and executive leaders and, and also with, with people on, on SLT. Um, and I coach women, um, almost exclusively coach women. And that's because most of the, uh, most of the people that originally wanted to coach with me were women who were often mums who were thinking about how to balance leadership with with their with their roles um, at home as well, and I and I just really really feel like I can be of service and 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 offer value there. So I coach women who are interested in making a transformation in their lives. Sometimes um, moving into into more leadership, but but sometimes wanting to be a bit more than they currently feel they are, and wanting to realise something that they feel is in them wanting to illuminate something wanting to become luminaries um so i coach women and i also offer schools support around diversity equity inclusion strategy and so um this is this is the um you know one of my has been an, a, a passion it's been bubbling along in the background for a long time and i've always sort of done diversity equity inclusion work and what i realized when i was writing lighting the way is that my approach to diversity, equity and inclusion is essentially my approach to school leadership is essentially what I mean by ethical leadership. It is making sure that places allow for human flourishing and taking account of all the voices and all of the needs and all of the concerns of all of the people within that community, however big or small. And that for me is what diversity, equity, inclusion work is. And and so now I do that in in a much more structured way um through through consulting work um so yeah people can find me on my website and i i also in in addition to those core pieces of work do bits of training around ethical leadership for schools so working with a group of primary schools at the moment um delivering some some ethical leadership training which is which is focused on the themes the key themes of of the book Oh, that's fantastic to hear, especially for our primary listeners as well. You know, yeah. that you don't, it is for primary or secondary. I work with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, work for, I work with 50, I would say 50% of my clients are primary and 50% are secondary. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, good split. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Angela. It's been fascinating talking to you about mm, leadership you and your book. I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's available through Bloomsbury Education. It's called Lighting the Way the case for ethical leadership in schools and uh, it's a fantastic read something you could come back to as well and keep dipping into and work through but I'll put all of your contact details with the podcast notes so you can um, go straight to, to look at Angela's website and all her details are on there so thank you again for your time Angela Great. it's been lovely to talk to you yeah you too thanks for having me okay
Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was brought to you by Cornerstones Education. We help primary schools in England, Wales and beyond with the materials and tools to design, deliver and manage their curriculum. Follow us on social media at Cornerstones Edu or visit us on our website, cornerstones.co.uk. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.